Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and wellbeing in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger and many more. There'll be talks, workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the Department for Education has issued guidance for schools. The period of national mourning will continue until the state funeral, but the guidance makes it clear that schools should remain open during this time. Ofsted reports are paused, but inspections will go ahead. The update suggests that schools may want to consider conducting special activities, holding assemblies or adapting lessons to commemorate the life of Her Majesty. Whilst no official date has yet been set for the state funeral, many media outlets are suggesting Monday, September the 19th as a possible date. There is also speculation around whether the state funeral proceedings would be classed as a public holiday something which would affect schools opening. Schools and other education settings across all four of the home nations have been involved in many events recognising the late Queen's 70 years of service to the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, with many media outlets carrying details of how her passing has been acknowledged by young people across all areas. England's Secretary of State for Education, Kit Malthouse, acknowledged Her Majesty's devotion to public service. Northern Ireland's Michelle McKilveen referred to Her Majesty as a champion of education and an impeccable role model for children and young people, and someone who will be missed immeasurably. The last public appearance of the Queen was on Tuesday the 6th of September, when she appointed Liz Truss as Prime Minister. The new Prime Minister made Cabinet announcements, including the appointment of Kit Malthouse as Secretary of State for Education. Mr Malthouse replaces James Cleverley in a year that has seen many ministers take up and then leave the role. Mr Malthouse was first elected in 2015 and is the MP for North West Hampshire. His previous experience has been with the Home Office and the Ministry of Justice. He studied politics and economics at Newcastle University and is a qualified chartered accountant. Mr Malthouse is married and has three children. After a year of turmoil, Mr Malthouse is likely to need to promote stability as quickly as possible within his department, while also taking steps to address the school funding crisis and issues brought about by further concerns around the cost of living. This has been Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. 
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week, if you haven't already gone, it's time to return to school. So, what tech advice do I have for you? This episode is aimed more at teachers newer to the profession, but there may also be something for those with more experience here too. Here are my top tips for returning to or starting a new school. First up, put your name on your power lead especially if your school uses the same laptops for lots of teachers. It's so easy to leave your power lead behind and then find it's been taken by someone thinking it's theirs. When moving between rooms, always close your laptop lid and remove power leads and USB drives. This can be a pain, but impact on a USB drive sticking out while in transit can stop the port working. Same goes for a power port. Modern computers are incredibly tricky to fix if these ports are damaged, and therefore, that will be the end of your laptop. If you're using USB drives, start moving into the cloud. If your school hasn't already banned them, they will be considering it due to the increased risk of viruses posed by using them. Always start your information management system as soon as you arrive. This is the software you take your register on. Don't leave it until it's time to take the register. This software updates regularly and can sometimes take a while, especially after a break when technicians have had the time to maintain your school system. Finally, one of my favourite shortcuts. If you don't know this, feel free to let me know I've changed your life. If you organise your internet bookmarks into folders, you can right-click on the folder and select Open All. This will open all of the web pages you'll be using in a lesson, saving you time and also making sure everything is loaded and ready to go. If this has given you food for thought, I'd love to hear from you. As we return to work, why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022, follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods. And that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hello, hello, everybody. Once more, here we are with one more show. And tonight, we are going to be talking about the comprehensible input hypothesis. We will also talk about uh, comprehensible output hypothesis and skill building hypothesis and many other interesting hypotheses in language teaching. Hello, everybody. Once again, this is Late Late, late, late Show with Hadi Fathi, and I am more than happy to have this chance to be talking to you live on Teachers Talk Radio. What a delight. Follow us on Twitter, uh, TT Radio 2022. You can also follow me on Twitter, Hadi Fathi18, and what a topic. What a great thing to talk about endless talk about language learning and language teaching and also language acquisition this is teachers talk radio and you're listening live so let's see what we have to talk about tonight uh first off uh, i promise you i will i won't make it more complicated than it already is because uh, you guys know that linguists naturally and generically have a tendency to make things more complicated. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my hardest, I promise you. I do, I'll do my best to make it more comprehensible, right? So let's see what we got to talk about. There are apparently 
two schools of thought. Okay, and this is something that we are going to be talking about tonight very primarily and very, very particularly. Because when it comes to language learning, language teaching, and language pedagogy, there is no shortage of uh, methodologies, methods, ways, and many, many, many different things. So, so I believe it is really helpful sometimes to make sure that what we know is necessarily something that can help us. Sometimes I, uh, I assume like we know about something, but our knowledge is very limited. So much so that this knowledge, instead of being helpful, is being somehow distractive. And it's not letting us realize uh, you know, the potential in our classes and in the realm of language teaching, ELT. Good. So let's cut to the chase. I mean, there is a lot to talk about, but tonight I chose this topic simply because to me, it is a very specific topic. The comprehensible input hypothesis. I know for a fact that you guys have heard of. In fact, I had a poll on Twitter like a month ago and uh, like, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 people took part and uh, almost 30% of the people said that, yes, they are familiar with this hypothesis or at least they have heard of it. Okay, so uh, so let's get, you know, uh, let's get to the meat and uh, you know, potatoes and uh, let's make sure that, you know, uh, we are going to be talking about it very thoroughly because at first I want to define what you know, the comprehensible hypothesis is, and then, hopefully, we have plenty of time to talk about what that is, you know, how it can be helpful, uh, and also, we are going to be talking about if it really is the ultimate solution, or it is just like a mirage, and this is something that people are just a little too excited about for no apparent reason, and what they say makes no sense. Oh, yeah, we'll get to that. No, yeah, we're going to be talking about it, and we're, we're going to, in fact, get to that part to make sure that what we know is, in fact, really helpful. Good. So let's go back to the topic. As I was telling you before, there are two schools of thought, okay, when it comes to language learning and language teaching. And you may already say, oh, hold on a second. Uh, you're just making it more complicated than it already is, but I promise you I'll do my best. So this can be simply a very complicated and um, puzzling topic to talk about, but I'm going to do my best. As I told you before, I'm going to make it as clear as possible, and you're going to help me. You're going to leave me comments. You're going to tell me what you think, and why not? You can also tune in and talk it out. You can tell me what you think, and then we can have a friendly conversation. So go for that as well. You know, it is super cool to have a conversation to talk about something that we are really passionate about. So let's go on. And as I was uh, telling you, uh, you know, there are like two schools of thoughts. And on the one hand, we have people who uh, talk really highly of comprehensible input. They simply believe that if you have like enough exposure to a certain language, let's call it target language, like TL, then learning happens. Yes, this is you no know, as simple as it sounds. So you need 
just comprehensible input. In other words, exposure. Okay? And no matter how hard you try, how tough you are, how smart you are, you're going to learn L2 as long as you have enough exposure. And that exposure gotta be comprehensible. What does that mean? Let me provide you with an example. Imagine that you want to learn um, Japanese, okay? Just simply watching shows in Japanese is not going to be really helpful, simply because you have no idea what those characters are talking about. So to you, as a basic learner, that is totally incomprehensible. And the result is little to none, like nothing. You're going to learn nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So the comprehensible hypothesis simply says you need exposure, but, I, but that exposure cannot be just any exposure. It has to be comprehensible. In other words, you have to understand it. And you don't have to understand it, of course, thoroughly, but apparently you need like a 90 to 95 percent of understanding. Like 5 percent noise is no problem, but you need like 90 to 95 percent of understanding. As long as this item is met, okay, you're going to make progress. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be happening. Impossible. So, interesting, interesting, because what we're talking about, you know, when we talk about skill building hypothesis, we are talking about uh, schools, like language schools, language academies. We are talking about, like, mammoth corporations. We are talking about gigantic publishing companies. And to put it less eloquently, we're talking about many billions of dollars. So, again, there are two school, uh, you know, schools of thought. First, we have you know, uh, the skill-building hypothesis. On the other hand, we have the comprehensible, uh, the comprehensible input hypothesis. And apparently, these two hypotheses you know, uh, are trying to, in fact, show that they are more effective than the other, and they start accusing each other. As I told you before, the way that people, proponents of uh, the comprehensible input hypothesis work, look at the skill-building hypothesis is like, I mean, there are like a bunch of people who have a lot of money, and they are in power, and they have very many schools, and they have like mammoth corporations, gigantic publishing companies and what they do is just exam testing making money and that's it i'm going to be talking about it much more of course i'm going to tell you why this cannot be the ultimate solution why skill building hypothesis is not that bad i'm going to be talking about it but at first let's see how those people the proponents of the comprehensible hypothesis look at a skill building hypothesis let's see what they uh, what their thoughts are and uh, when it comes to the comprehensible input hypothesis, of course, uh, there's one name that you cannot ignore. And that name, uh, and that person is a hero. I'm talking about Stephen Krashen. And that person is a hero. And we cannot ignore what he says and what he thinks. He might be pessimistic from time to time, but I believe what he says is worth listening to and thinking about. So let's see what those people think. So as I told you before, 
they simply think that the skill building hypothesis and people who advocate for uh, skill building hypothesis are just people in power, people who have a lot of money, and uh, you know it's all about big, really you know gigantic companies who are like making a lot of money and they're like so happy with the money they earn, so on and so forth. And, uh, and it's like a vicious circle. Schools hire teachers and teachers need to be qualified. So they need to go to universities and they take part in different courses. And at the end of the day, you pay a lot of money to get familiar and have a good grasp of learning and teaching. And then you become a teacher and then your students also need to take part in different classes and courses and study hard and repeat and repeat to make sure they have fully learned something and and to just put it like in a nutshell it is all about spending a lot of money and apparently it is it is it is something that is happening like almost everywhere and krashen believes that the skill building hypothesis is not very successful and effective and he provides numbers and figures and he talks about like many many different studies done by uh, like first-class researchers and so on and so forth and they proudly uh, claim that the skill building hypothesis is more of a business enterprise than a helping foundation and um, it is mostly benefiting those uh, like testing systems and companies and publishing companies than the learner and of course seems and sounds like a little too dark but but they might have a point. So let's see what they believe and what they uh, think exactly. I believe that can uh, be of great benefit and help. So first off, let's talk about what Krashen, in fact, talks about in his uh, set of uh, hypotheses. As you know, that Krashen has like five hypotheses, or these hypotheses may not be like, his, but of course, he is, I believe, the person who made these hypotheses very popular. And some of these ideas are very original, and of course, for uh, you know, he himself. At first, he goes with the, the acquisition learning hypothesis. And then there's also one more hypothesis, the monitor hypothesis, and then the natural order hypothesis, and, the in, and then the input hypothesis, and also... Uh, last but not least, the effective filter hypothesis. So first, let's talk about the acquisition learning hypothesis. Krashen believes, and also very many others, uh, believe that like schools, language schools, language academies, focus on learning. And first, let's talk about what learning is. You know, what learning happens to be like. Let's talk about learning. So they believe that learning is something intentional. So when you want to learn something, you got to pay attention to what you're learning. And this is a very conscious process. So you take part in classes, you listen to audio files, you listen to your teacher, you take notes, so on and so forth. So that's what you do. And Krashen believes this is first really painful. Second, it is not effective. Third, there are better ways you can pull that off. 
And then he starts talking about acquisition. He believes that you can learn like, like, like much better and also almost without any efforts, literally, effortlessly, by acquisition. And let's talk about what acquisition is. He says, and he believes, acquisition is, first off, how we are wired to learn as human beings, like a kid. And he believes, apparently, there is no distinguishable difference when it comes to first language acquisition and second language acquisition. And then he concludes, you can learn L2 and L3, okay, the same way. So, and then let's talk about how acquisition happens. So let's talk about a kid. Imagine like uh, an infant, like a baby, two, three years old, and then, uh, you know, a toddler, three, four years old. What is happening around them is uh, talking language, talking language, 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 language. And they have a lot of exposure to the target language. In fact, every single day, they watch TV, they watch cartoons, they talk to their parents, uh, with, with their, like, friends, and they are, in fact, surrounded by the target language. The kid, the kid, of course, tries to communicate as well as possible, yet the kid does not do anything to learn the language. In fact, it is happening involuntarily. The kid has no intention and parents do not, for example, uh, talk to the kid about the adjective, the verbs, and also the verb, and for example, uh, I don't know, the, the subject verb agreement. Parents do not talk about it. They, of course, correct their kids, but that happens very sporadically. That doesn't happen. I, to my knowledge, to the best of my knowledge, that doesn't happen at all. But the kid, very gradually, you may say, slowly, learns the language, or in fact, acquires the language. And after a while, the kid can speak the language very confidently and very competently. But the kid, as we talked before, had no intention to learn the language. But it just happened. Apparently, he was having fun. He was just watching a cartoon, and that was fascinating. He was talking to, her, uh, to his friends or her friends, and that was cool. And apparently... Communication, talking to the friends, and having a, for example, a heart-to-heart, -heart was 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 way more fun than learning a language. And learning or acquiring a language was the byproduct. You had no intention. It all happens involuntarily. So that is, uh, you know, I believe that's where this conversation starts. And uh, people focus on acquisition and they believe like it happens better, it happens more smoothly, it happens more effortlessly. And, but learning, on the other hand, is painful, it takes a lot of time, and, uh, and it is expensive. Of course, you have to take more many classes, so on and so forth. This is what people uh, who support the comprehensible input hypothesis provide you no know, people, the non-believers, with, in fact. But there are problems to that, and there are things we need to talk about. When it comes to acquisition, first, we are talking about exposure. We are talking about comprehensible input. We are talking about exposure, listening, listening, interacting, experimenting with the language, and so on and so forth. 
and apparently the role of correction, drill, or instruction is little to none. And this apparently violates what noticing hypothesis, in fact, provides. So we have a hypothesis called like noticing, like you notice something. And uh, what it says is, in order to learn a language, uh, especially after like the intermediate level or pre-intermediate level, you have to notice things. You have to notice like you need to learn this, this is, you, you need to notice the input. Just raw input with no help can, cannot come in handy. So first, that's the problem with the acquisition learning hypothesis. So it simply denies or at least neglects or doesn't pay enough attention or make, makes light of noticing hypothesis. That's the first thing, okay? The second thing is that the acquisition learning hypothesis, in fact, uh, simply overlooks the importance of puberty. It simply says, like, there's no such thing. And you can learn uh, when you are 20, when you are 30, when you are 40, and apparently there's no obstacles. Yet we somehow feel, I believe, that when we get older, we do not necessarily get better learners. So this is the second thing that you know, the acquisition learning hypothesis ignores. There's also a, a different hypothesis. Oh gosh, we're talking about many, many, many hypotheses. But there's also another hypothesis, the critical period hypothesis. It's called like CPH. As I told you before, linguists, I believe, enjoy creating new abbreviations every now and then. Anyways, uh, the CPH is in fact the critical period hypothesis also uh, you know, has its own point and says you do not learn uh, you know, uh, the way, for example, the way you're 17 in comparison with the way, for example, you're 17. And there are differences. There are really huge differences. And you don't get better. I believe you could guess that. You know, in fact, your competence and your grasp uh, decreases exponentially. And the difference is so dramatic, like so dramatic that you can't deny. So after puberty, we're not going to be talking about CPH more, but at least we do know that after puberty, you do not get a better learner. So when you are, for example, 40 years old, acquisition may not happen effortlessly as it is happening for a five-year-old or a two-year-old. So this is the second thing that the acquisition learning hypothesis, in fact, does not talk about. And there's also one more thing. I believe it was like, uh, it was like new school, I think. Diane uh, Larson Freeman was, in fact, uh, giving a lecture and she was talking about uh, like a case study. And, and then she uh, talked about, I believe, a Japanese business person. And that Japanese uh, business person apparently uh, lived in the U.S. for a good, like, 20 years. And he was in his, like, mid-40s then. And he spoke English, but the way he spoke English was not, uh, like, by no means proper English. Of course, he always managed to make, you know, himself understood. He could, like 
converse with people and communicate with people because he was a business person after all. But the English he spoke was never proper. It was not good English. Uh, and then he was asked why like, or, or how this all happened or didn't happen. He said, okay, I don't need to. Or like people should learn my language. I don't have to learn their language. He was not a very level-headed person apparently, but that uh, that is what he thought. So we can see that a lot of exposure, okay, like flooding the learner with like the language, can sometimes like backfire or at least happen to be ineffective. So these are the problems with the acquisition uh, learning hypothesis. So these are like things that we uh, simply see in uh, these are like holes that we simply see in the acquisition learning hypothesis and then uh, let's move on and let's go to the monitor hypothesis so uh, on the surface that may have nothing to do with linguistics but and grammar especially but it is all about grammar by grammar I mean like rules and uh, so when it comes to learning okay we teachers we talk about learning right we talk about like okay that is not wrong that is not correct if you want if you want to talk about for example the past and you if you want to mention the exact time you'd better use simple past right that's what we do as teachers that's what we talk about and uh, you correct your students you provide them with feedback so on and so forth and sometimes i mean for the most part our course books and source books and uh, like uh, the units, in fact, are divided into different units simply because of grammar. And then Krashen comes over and says, oh, gosh, this is all wrong. That's not how it works. Grammar is not important. He doesn't say, he doesn't say that it doesn't matter at all, but he says, you know, the role of grammar in language learning and acquisition is very little. In fact, it is like, for example... Uh, you speak the language and you do not necessarily think about the things you say in terms of, for example, grammar and vocabulary and pronunciation. And then you say that and then you can correct yourself. So learning grammar, like filling the gaps, studying grammar day in and day out, won't make you necessarily a better speaker. And in fact, it may even somehow rob you of, of the joy that you can have communicating with others or, at, or reading a very interesting book. So these are the things that you know, Krashen talks about when it comes to monitor hypothesis. And you can see that uh, to a very good extent, what he says makes sense. And I'm not here to tell, I mean, to tell you that oh, this, this is wrong, this is bad. I'm just here to compare these two, and then I'm going to leave the decision to you. And uh, and I don't know, we, we can choose to sit on the fence, or we can have the best of both worlds, right? So that was the monitor hypothesis. So if you're studying, for example, a grammar book, uh, then based on what Krashen says, you're just wasting your time. That's not how it works. It's not going to make you a better speaker. You simply need to focus on input and learn and just listen to different, for example, storybooks or watch TV and then just leave very little time to grammar because it's not going to help you speak better. It, it is just going to help you speak like more correctly and accurately. 
And then let's move on. Let's go and let's talk about the third hypothesis. This one is the best one, I assume, because it is super fun. It is called the natural order hypothesis. Uh, we already knew that learning has apparently has like an order. You may not see that necessarily, but it does exist. For example, let's talk about uh, grammar. Okay, what I'm saying is from uh, like 50 grammar points by Scott Thornberry. I don't know. I, I, honestly, I, I have forgotten the name of the book, but that's a great one. And then Scott says, uh, when you want to, for example, teach grammar, especially when you want to teach the past tense of the verbs, you always start with regular verbs, right? For example, you teach study and say studied, and say finish and then finished. Okay, super simple. You add an ed to the verb, tada, you already have a past simple verb. That's how it works. And then, after teaching regular verbs, you're going to be teaching the irregular ones. It doesn't happen the other way around. So you always, in all grammar books, they always start with you know, regular verbs and then irregular verbs. Yet, yet, we learn, apparently, based on the study, what I'm telling you is like very tested and proved, uh, but apparently learners learn irregular grammar, like irregular past tense uh, verbs, uh, way uh, like before the regular ones. And, uh, and this is the order. So as a, for example, teacher, you may find it very frustrating that your kids are not learning the uh, regular past tense uh, and uh, they are just making mistakes. But you are like shocked when you see your kids use the irregular ones more frequently and more accurately. And that is crazy, but it is the way it is. And also, speaking of, like, for example, the third person S, this is also very late acquired. Uh, it takes like a lot of time, a very long time to learn that. And for some, it never happens. And you have to just keep repeating and get the exposure. Uh, and then sometime, somehow, like somewhere, you're going to use it. You got to wait until its time has come. So there, I believe there's nothing wrong with that. It is great. It is super cool. And uh, of course, in fact, it gives you like a good grasp of uh, like what is happening you know, right now. As a teacher, sometimes uh, you want to really see the progress, yet what you say is like nothing. Uh, and sometimes it can help you like to feel much better because you start judging yourself like am i doing something wrong why aren't they learning the way they should be learning it is not happening at all so on and so forth you start doubting your skills your competence like so on and so forth just wait all right so this is what this uh, hypothesis in fact uh, offers to us just wait sometimes it takes time it takes time and Krashen himself says wait until its time has come so I believe that is really helpful advice. Yeah, I find it super cool, to be honest. That's my favorite hypothesis. Wait, wait. Good. And then the input hypothesis, okay? This hypothesis has evolved over years. At first, it was just comprehensible input, okay? Just input, the input hypothesis. And then it become, uh, it become, uh, it be you know, then and then it's become the uh, comprehensible input hypothesis and then very recently 
uh, it evolved into something even cool, even more cool, and it, it, it has become the comprehensible input hypothesis slash the compelling input hypothesis. In fact, uh, Krashen um, says something fun. Okay, let, I'm going to repeat what he says. He says, of course we need input. Of course, no doubt. Undoubtedly, you need, you need, you need, you need input. That's how you learn. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. You need input. And then he says, that input should be comprehensible. You should understand what you're listening to. If you don't understand what you're listening to, you have no chance. Okay, like zero chance. And then he says, okay, that's not enough. Hold on a second. The input that you're getting, okay, can work best when it is compelling. And not just interesting. Compelling. He says it has to be very, very, very interesting in order to help learners learn. And if it is not like interesting enough, your students are not going to acquire the language. As I told you before, the input solely cannot be the ultimate solution because sometimes you are exposed to the language, but you know, you, you learn almost nothing, right? And uh, based on what I told you, the noticing hypothesis, you have to notice the input. So like simple input, just input, 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 of course cannot help you. And the, the example, the case study that Diane Larson Freeman, in fact, talk, talked about, is also uh, saying the same thing. Like input, 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 of course cannot help. You need to notice the input. And more importantly, the input gotta be interesting. And you have to have uh, like, like an interest towards that input. You have to like it. You have to love it. You have to like have a motivation in order to learn that. So these are things that we need to take into consideration when it comes to the input hypothesis. And last but not least, the effective filter hypothesis. And it is simply um, saying that you need to be at ease. If you want to learn a language right for example if you are a coach no problem shout ask make them run make them do push-ups and pull-ups no problem but as a teacher you can't do it um, in other words the more conducive the ambience of the class the better okay if your kids are at ease everything is all right they feel so comfortable learning happens there and therein lies the difference because you cannot simply teach, 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 teach and create a lot of tension, especially the dysphoric tension, and then hope that your kids uh, will learn the language uh, like very well and very easily. That, can ha that cannot happen. Simply because the effective filter, not the effective filter, the effective filter with an A comes up and blocks learning. When you're stressed, you can't learn that's what this uh, hypothesis in fact provides and there's no problem with that okay we already knew that and there's no problem with that uh, it's 100% okay it is super helpful it can help us uh, like learn better of course there's nothing wrong with that but let's go back to what we're talking about so the input hypothesis so Krashen also claims that to acquire a language, you don't have to speak it. 
I know some of you guys right now are at odd. Like you say, seriously, what? Yes, you just heard me right. He believes speaking does not make you a better speaker. In fact, he believes input does that. Okay, let's take one like more step uh, further. I believe you guys, uh, for example, of course, you have read a lot of books, you have attended a lot of courses, and then there, those instructors always told you about TTT. Like, okay, what does that stand for? I believe you guys know. Yeah, teachers talk time. Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't talk too much. Instructors say, you need to manage your TTT. If you're talking too much, then you it is it is it is. Too expensive in in a in a way that uh, it is just robbing their uh, your students of the time they can communicate with each other and activate the language, right? Krashen goes, that is totally wrong. He goes, teachers should have a very prominent and dominant role in the class. They should talk and talk and talk. In fact, they should provide their students with the maximum input, the optimal input. It has to be comprehensible, it has to be compelling, and there you go. Just talk to them, read them stories, tell them stories, and so on and so forth. He also, in fact, offers ways, uh, by means of which, uh, you can provide a class uh, a lot of stories, and they can be interesting in their own sense. For example, uh, there's a person, Benico Mason, He's, I believe, from she's, I believe, from Japan, and she is a professor. And she has, a, you know, a unique way of teaching that is called storytelling. Okay, and uh, how does that happen? Uh, the teacher goes to the board and starts telling a story. That's how it is. Okay. Of course, the story is interesting. It's not as dull as it is, uh, as I said. <laughs> And the teacher like draws like pictures and photos and then memes and so on and so forth and then tells a story and students listen. It is all about it, and uh, it do, and they don't get to speak so much. They don't get to interact with each other, and the result, based on research, uh, like could be quite crazy because, uh, in fact, students learn better by listening. Yet again, we all know that it is against the output hypothesis by Swain. Let's talk about it for a second, and then I'll get back to Benico Mason and her fun way of teaching English. So first off, let's go for Swain. And Swain uh, has a hypothesis. It is called the output hypothesis. And you can guess what it, what it is. It is, in fact, the exact opposite of input hypothesis. Swain believes like the act of producing language, speaking or writing, uh, constitutes, under certain circumstances, part of the process of second language learning. In fact, she believes speaking helps. Why? Because when you talk, you notice that there are gaps in your knowledge. You see that you do not know, for example, enough words and grammar to communicate very thoroughly, right? And she uh, finds it really helpful to provide the students with 
like opportunities uh, that they can talk to one another and interact with uh, with each other so it can be really helpful but it is in fact the exact opposite of the input hypothesis something that Krashen says you don't need to speak and speaking is just the result okay speaking is not the cause he believes that uh, input like a great deal of input in fact brings about uh, speaking and speaking is just the result and talking is not going to make you a better speaker so as I told you before it is against what uh, Swain in fact offers and uh, she she talked about it in 1985 uh, it's like for a long time ago but uh, a lot of people like talk about it and people say look yeah it is correct we need to uh, talk to notice the gap so on and so forth and then on the other hand many others go like no it is not necessary at all you don't need to be talking or so on and so forth so that is in fact the point that we need to be talking about and I really want to know what you think like do you think teachers gotta be talking because that's how it works it is in fact uh, in line with uh, you know one of the most important theories in the realm of language teaching you know it is the input hypothesis and also the acquisition learning hypothesis so or we gotta go uh, with the noticing hypothesis we gotta go with the the comprehensible output hypothesis uh, so on and so forth in fact when it comes to like teaching and uh, I told you when we talk about these courses like CELTA, DELTA, like TESOL courses, I mean, you mostly talk about the skill building hypothesis. We mostly focus on learning than acquisition. And uh, you provide your students with a great deal of talking, you ask them to interact with each other, uh, and you do your best to provide them with real life scenarios, and you ask them to interact and just buy something in a task, and so on and so forth. and it is, I believe, as if the less the teacher speaks, the better. And if you if you manage as a teacher, if you manage to speak like very little, and then you're really good. So what do you think? Uh, I believe, like, I myself, I speak from my own experience. For example, I was talking to a great colleague uh, last week, and I was asking him to speak less. Because I just told him, oh, you're just talking all the time, and you cannot teach for your learners and then learn for your learners you gotta give them the opportunity they can talk with each other and then afterwards i thought hold on a second if he uh doesn't what if he didn't speak at all i mean because i don't i don't want the class to be like quiet or i don't want the class to be like very boring and dull i mean the teacher gotta do something the teacher got to say something, the, the teacher got to tell a story, the teacher got to provide them with something, and so on and so forth. And this is, I believe, uh, what it gets a little too complicated. And as our roles as teachers, our instructors, as you know, uh, helpers, is to just bring about learning and provide the students with a great opportunity in which they can interact with each other or we just put we gotta need we need to put that aside and go back and just tell stories talk and talk and talk and talk and this can in fact um, help our students get uh, of course a much more uh, a much better input uh, that is greater in 
quality and also in quantity, and that can in fact help them speak better. So this is the challenge that I believe a lot of teachers uh, deal with, and uh, and that can be really bugging because at the end of the day, you want to have like your own uh, way of teaching, and uh, and these theories, of course, and these hypotheses, of course, of course, can help. But we all know that we gotta make that decision. Let's go back to uh, what I was talking about. Speaking of Benico Mason, uh, first off, do not mistake storytelling with a story listening. What she does is is a story listening. What does she do? She tells a story, okay, and the story happens to be interesting, or at least she does her best, and then she tells a story, and then she draws on the board. And by drawing, she makes uh, her story uh, comprehensible as much as possible. And then students just listen. Their role is like that, okay, just listening. And apparently, like, they, they do just like nothing. Of course, they're just getting the input. They're listening attentively, hopefully. But their role is like that. There's also one more way of teaching uh, using stories that is called storytelling. Okay, this is quite different than story listening. Storytelling, on the other hand, is of course you're using stories. Of course, it is like TTRS again. You're teaching through uh, stories. Um, yet, the role of the learners is like way more active. And uh, for example, you say, "I like the lion went out." For example, went out of the jungle. And then you ask, okay, where do you think the, the lion went? And then kids go like, uh, I mean, he went to, I don't know, a different jungle, shopping or something like this. And so the jungle, I mean, the lion went to uh, went to a shopping center. Yeah, he went to shopping. And then asks, okay, what do you think uh, he did there? And people said he bought, like, for example, bagels or donuts or something. Uh, and then kids, uh, in fact, offer different, uh, like, I don't know, sentences, and then the teacher chooses one and then continues the story. And of course, the teacher corrects and then provides words and many other things in order to make the situation like as interesting as possible in order to carry on with the story. It is a story telling, uh, which of course, in fact, allocates some responsibility on a student's uh, like shoulders and ask them to participate, talk, interact, and uh, exchange opinions, and so on and so forth. So that is story listening, storytelling, uh, which is kind of different. So I really want to know what your thoughts are. So right now, I want you, don't be shy, just let me know what you think. Uh, your ideas are always great. It is always amazing to uh, listen to those people talk and listen to uh, you guys, I mean, just go and let me know what you what your thoughts are. So here I have got something from Rachel. Rachel goes, I think both input and output are important. Uh, and uh, uh, Long's interaction hypothesis. Oh, cool. Great. So let's make it more complicated. And let's talk about Mike Long. And first off, uh, I mean, Mike Long is a great contributor, was a great contributor to the realm of ELT, and unfortunately, he passed uh, away like a good, I believe, two, three years ago. And uh, and he also, of course, is known for his great contribution to uh, task-based language teaching. 
and uh, and of course uh, his way of you know task based language teaching because he also uh, focused on if on if like focused on form which was something back then very new uh, and uh, and I believe like if if I was to talk about Mike Longan uh, his work I believe I do need another um, I believe episode of uh, like ELT and uh, talk about it. in fact uh, I will have a great guest I believe um, next time and we are going to be talking about interaction hypothesis and I believe it's going to be super cool uh, because as you know uh, when it comes to language learning and when it comes to language acquisition there is a lot to talk about there is literally a lot to talk about uh, but we both yeah we all know that you know input is important output is important uh, in order to like learn a language you need both but the question is like how much of this and then how much of that uh, I told you, you know, when it comes to like Delta Delta courses, I believe it's very motivated, it's very encouraged to speak less as a teacher and just uh, ask your students to speak as much as possible. Uh, on the other hand, we have the input hypothesis that says, oh no, that is a terrible mistake. This is the most egregious thing that can happen to a learner. You need to provide them with input as much as possible. So to me, Rachel, like these two thoughts are too contradictory that putting them like in one hypothesis and hoping that it's going to solve the problem seems to be a little uh i didn't how can you say like visual thinking but of course we are going to be talking about that you no know, next time much much more good so everybody uh gotta say goodbye unfortunately very very unfortunately and uh, I just had a great deal of fun talking to you, and uh, it was it was super cool. In fact, it was like literally amazing. Uh, gotta say goodbye. You just listened to Teachers Talk Radio. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you enjoyed. And I'm gonna be counting the seconds, literally counting the seconds, to meet you and to talk to you once again next time. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.